Good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Uh, If you would go ahead and open your Bible, we're going to study God's Word together. Open up to the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 12. So it's the second book in the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus. We're entering into a series, a four-week series. It's kind of a holy month series, starting here on Palm Sunday. Uh, And it's going to run through the next few weeks. And we're just going to look at how the Old Testament points us to Jesus. So three or four pictures, blood this morning, bones, thrones, and songs. Blood, the blood of the Passover lamb that's shed that points forward to Jesus. Bones, the valley of the dry bones that the spirit of God breathes over and brings life where there had been death. And we're gonna look at that on Easter Sunday next week. So I hope you'll bring friends and family for that. And then thrones, the ascended Jesus who rules over every earthly power. Uh, in heaven and on earth, and then songs, the new creation, God's ransom coming home with songs and harps in hand in Isaiah chapter 35. So I think it's going to be really rich uh, seeing again how the Old Testament is just rolling out the red carpet for the long-promised Messiah we've been waiting for who changes everything in our lives. Starting right here, Inklings, Blood in Exodus chapter 12. If you'd follow along in your copy of God's word, it reads this way. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over the fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn. Here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. So what do you know about God that motivates you to worship? How does does theology lead to doxology? move from truths that are held in our minds to truths that fire up the heart of worship and obedience toward God. What what about this? For all who trust in Jesus, here's a truth to hold on to. God fights for us and he is strong. 
He is formidable. There's no one stronger. He fights for you. I think one of the reasons so many in our, our culture hold a Christian religion that's pretty irrelevant for their daily lives is because the God in whom they believe is a lightweight. And so, as J.I. Packer would say years ago, um, a pygmy God makes pygmy Christians. A miniature God makes miniature Christians. A big God stands Christians with hope and fearlessness and courage in the world. You know, we have, we have hymns that are sometimes so, and you know I love hymns, but there are some hymns that they're so syrupy, they're so sentimental, right? They portray God, there's, there's a hymn uh, that portrays God as kind of this, this timid being that walks around in a garden and every now and then you see him poke his head behind some bushes and he doesn't want to interfere, right? He, he would love it if you would come spend a minute or two with him, that would, that would brighten his day. You know, so if you have a second or so, just kind of turn into the garden and whisper uh, some words to him that, that might lift his spirits and make his day a little bit brighter, right? That, that idea that he's out there in the garden in solitude and he doesn't want to interfere. Enter the God of the book of Exodus and interference is his middle name, right? He's kicking doors down. He is unignorable. All you got to do is just open the blinds. And there he is in Egypt doing signs and wonders, raining down judgment in the heavens. It is unignorable. In the course of a few chapters in the book of Exodus, Yahweh ridicules Egypt's gods, all, all nine of them. And then leading into the 10th one, which we'll see this morning, he's just ridiculed, picking them off one by one. He buckles the knees of Egypt's Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, and his knees are buckled at the end of this story. If you follow Jesus Christ, that God, this God, is for you. Which means what? It means if you, if you need a God who will redeem everything that's broken in your life, the God you need is the God of Exodus chapter 12. He is a redeemer. Redemption is his business. It is his proficiency. It's in his skill set. He, sa- he is a stem to stern savior. Sally Lloyd-Jones. How many of you have this book, the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones? Okay, I would encourage you to get it. And you might be like, it looks like a kid's book and I don't have kids. You still need to get this book and you still need to read it. And you'll be deeply encouraged by the way that she relates and conveys the stories of scripture under one big story of what God is doing in Jesus Christ in world history. And she captures the story of the Exodus so beautifully. So I'm gonna back up and let her kind of give us the broader context. I'm gonna read you a bedtime story. Uh, But you can't go to sleep. Promise you can't go to sleep. So here's how she relates the story of the Exodus in its broader context. God to the rescue. Joseph and his brothers grew old and died, but their children's children stayed on in Egypt where they became a very large family. Later on, a new king began to rule, but this Pharaoh didn't remember Joseph and he didn't like God's people. He made them into his slaves and beat them and made them work harder and harder. God's people cried out to God to rescue them and God heard them. He remembered his promise to Abraham. He would look after his people. He would find a way to set them free. One day Moses was looking after sheep when something caught his eye. A bush was behaving very oddly. It was flickering with flames, but its leaves weren't burning up. He took a closer look. Moses, boomed a big voice. 
Moses leapt back. The bush was talking to him. I have heard my people's cries, God said. I've seen their tears, so I have come down to rescue them. Go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go free. Moses was afraid, but God said, I will be with you. So Moses went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Moses began. God says, God, said Pharaoh, never heard of him. Moses kept going. God says, let his people go free. Why should I, Pharaoh said, don't want to. So he didn't. So God gave Pharaoh 10 warnings called plagues. First, God turned the river Nile into blood. No one could drink the water, but still Pharaoh would not let them go. So God made frogs come hopping and leaping and jumping in your bed frogs, in your hair frogs, in your soup frogs, all over everywhere frogs. Make them go away, Pharaoh screamed. Then your people can go. So God took the frogs away. But Pharaoh changed his mind. You can't go, he said. Then God sent zillions of gnats. But still Pharaoh said no. So then God sent swarms of flies, flies buzzing in your eyes, flies. And after that sickness and horrible boils, huge hailstones, storm of locusts, then darkness when it should have been day until it seemed that the whole world, creation and everything was coming undone, falling back into darkness and emptiness and nothingness. But each time Pharaoh said, make it stop and then I'll let them go. And each time when God made it stop, Pharaoh changed his mind and said, actually, no, you can't go. Finally, Moses warned Pharaoh, obey God or he will have to send the worst thing of all. Pharaoh just laughed. And so God said, the oldest boy in each family of Egypt must die, but my people will be safe. God told his people to take their best lamb, to kill it, and to put some of its blood on their front doors. When God passes over your house, Moses explained, God will see the blood and know that the lamb died instead of you. That night, it was just as God had said. Suddenly, the piercing darkness echoing down the corridors of the palace came a blood-curdling scream. Pharaoh's oldest son had died. At last, Pharaoh did what God said. Get out, Pharaoh shouted. Just go. It is a legendary story. It's a story that generated a thousand songs in Israel, and you read a number of them in your book of Psalms, where time after time they talk about them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he brought us out of slavery. Exodus 12 holds out three truths that Christians must grasp. Number one, we have a problem. We have a problem. So this is the 10th plague. But if you notice and you go back and read those other plagues, the other nine pose no threat to Israel. Egyptian houses swarm with flies. No flies over the people of Israel. They're in Goshen, so it's related. I mean, it's right there. It's in the broader land of Egypt, and yet there's no flies in Goshen where the Israelites are, and there's flies everywhere else. Verse 12, though, changes that. Look it down in, in your Bible. I will pass, this is God, through the angel of judgment, his kind of executive arm. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male. Notice he didn't say every firstborn Egyptian male. He just simply said, every firstborn male I will strike in the whole land of Egypt, both people and animals. The upshot is this, it's a night of fear. It's a night of fear. 
previous nine plagues, you're protected simply by being an Israelite. You got nothing to do, no lambs to kill, no, no blood to apply. Just sit there and be an Israelite and you're safe for plagues one through nine. But in this last plague, things change. The perspective changes. In this last plague, Israel's greatest threat isn't Pharaoh anymore. It's God. Because everyone is in sin. Universal sin is the banner over the entire human race, not just the Egyptians. And so when God comes to town in his holy attire, it's gonna be dangerous for everybody. The angel of death represents what happens when a holy God makes contact with an unholy world without a sacrifice, without a mediator, without the blood of a lamb. You can't help but wonder, at least I wonder as I read this text, if Israel might have been surprised to hear that they're vulnerable, that, that, that we might be on the business end of this particular plague, that this one, this one makes us tremble as well. We're in the blast radius of this particular, our sons, our firstborn sons are in the blast radius of this particular angel of death. It was a night of fear because the wages of sin is death and all have sinned, which might sound familiar because when you go over into the New Testament, that's exactly what the New Testament tells us to make it more personal, not just all have sinned, you can put the letter Y in front of that word. Y'all have sinned. You, Israel, not just Egypt, you have sinned. That's the lesson that we come away from, right? That, that's a point for the Exodus community there in Exodus chapter 12. It's also a point for us as well. You think about how sometimes the church at her worst today, right? Sometimes the church at our worst can gloat against the world, as if the world is in a totally different place than we are in terms of their moral put-togetherness. But when we gloat against the world around us, we have obviously lost the story. We have dropped the story somewhere, right? Because the church can't gloat at the world's evil when the root of that evil is still inside of us. And that's the reality. You come and read the pages of the New Testament, you find out indwelling sin is still an issue for believers. John says, if you say, and he's talking to the church, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So sin, indwelling sin is still a global problem. That's why Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount were so radical and, and they were so uh, even-handedly offensive. He said, um, he said, it's been said before, thou shalt not murder. And he said, but there's actually a deeper issue than just the murder issue. Yes to that, yes, you shouldn't murder, but you're not off the hook yet because murder is what happens when other sins are allowed to go unaddressed. Sins like anger, sins like hatred in the heart, and those things grow and fester, and that downstream of that is Murder, adultery, Jesus would say. Adultery is what happens when lust goes unaddressed. So he says, let's not just talk about the adultery once that's played out. Let's talk about the lust problem. Let's address the root. Jesus went to the root, which meant when you read him in the pages of the gospels, teaching and preaching, his teaching and preaching is either making people spitting angry or desperate for mercy, depending on who's listening. I love how Alec Mateer comments on our passage, He's, he writes these words, when the wrath of God is applied in its essential reality, no one is safe. There were two nations in the land of Egypt, but they were both resistant to the word of God. And if God comes in judgment, 
none will escape. God is no respecter of persons. There is no partiality with God. You remember when Jesus would talk to the Pharisees and religious leaders and they said, we have Abraham as our father. Go talk to other people about their sin. And Jesus leaned into that moment and he said, ax is being laid at the root of the tree and every tree that doesn't repent before God is gonna fall. And he's looking at them. Let's be clear about where the refuge is. When we gather as a church and we remember the gospel, let's be clear about the, where the refuge really is. Church at Brook Hills, your churchiness doesn't insulate you from God's judgment against sin. Christian, professing Christian, your association with Christian things and goings on doesn't insulate you from God's judgment against sin. Why? Read Romans chapter one and two and three. And what, what you see there is that there's a pagan way to deny God the glory that he is due. And there's a religious way to deny God the glory that he is due. And in both cases, the outcome is the same. That's why there's devastating news. That's why at the end of that whole section of Romans chapter three, it says, when God comes in judgment, every mouth is silenced. The whole world is guilty before God because all have sinned. There's none good, there's none righteous, not even one. Here's the point, and here's the gravity end of what's going on in Exodus chapter 12. If Israel blows this off, their firstborn sons don't wake up tomorrow. It's real, this is not a drill, this is not hypothetical, this is not a bluff. They ate that meal inside that house underneath that blood-stained timber with trembling hands because of the gravity of the glory and the holiness of God. They had front row seats for these last nine plagues to watch what the verse about God opposing the proud looks like. And it would have wiped the smirk off all their faces. The threat of God's judgment reminded them, truth number one, we have a problem. Truth number two, we have a shelter. We have a shelter. It's not just the night of fear. It's a night of faith. It's a night of faith. When you come over into the pages of the New Testament and you let these writers explain our Old Testament and shine light on the pages of the Old Testament, they keep telling us what this whole thing was about and what it was all leading to. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says about the Exodus. By faith, Moses left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. By faith, Moses instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. What's that by faith language doing there? All throughout, really all throughout Hebrews chapter 11, but what's it doing when it says by faith Moses instituted the Passover? It means this, that night, if we could travel back in time, time travel back to Exodus chapter 12, that night if you killed a lamb, and painted its blood on the lintel and on the doorpost of your house, you did that staking the life of your firstborn son on the fact that somehow the angel of death saw that as meaningful. Somehow the angel of death would recognize the difference between the house that has the blood and the house that doesn't have the blood, between sins which were under the blood and sins which were not under the blood. You, you staked everything on that fact. Look, understand, when we're reading through, this is one of my favorite things about when we study the Old Testament, is the Old Testament preaches the gospel. 
That's why the Apostle Paul, when he's in Romans and he wants to find ways to preach the gospel of justification by faith, he reaches into the Old Testament and he starts letting the Old Testament preach it to us. Here's the lesson for us. You are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And that comes singing out of Exodus chapter 12 as they paint blood over the doors of their houses so that they can be sheltered inside under the blood of a lamb. It's it's pretty powerful. But it's not like there was some some kind of magic in the blood of the actual lamb, right? This is a tutorial. This is a teaching device. It's, it's a holdover for something that's gonna come into fulfillment later on. Think about it this way. So I don't, I don't know much about uh, vampire lore, but, but um, one thing that's always struck me as odd when you enter into the, the tropes associated with vampire writing uh, is the garlic thing. You know, you, you, you hang garlic outside or over the door or around your neck or whatever and that sort of wards off these powerful beings that will suck you dry and kill you, right? If, it's so just imagine with me for a second. So if vampires were actually real and they were being unleashed on the city of Birmingham tonight at twilight, uh, tonight, that's unintended. Uh, <laughs> They're being unleashed, right, on on Birmingham. We hear that they're coming through town. To me, I'm not sleeping well if I just got garlic around my neck, right? I am anxious tonight. Garlic doesn't seem like it's gonna do the trick. I mean, I got all this stuff I'm hanging outside. I got this in the seasoning aisle at Publix and it's supposed to ward off the power of the vampires, right? Now, now leave the myth behind and enter into the real event. The angel of death is actually coming tonight. It's real. What's the plan? And then you hear the plan come back to you and it's a two-step plan. Kill Bessie and paint the door. How are you feeling? How many, literally, how many of you are firstborn sons? So how are you feeling about that plan? <laughs> Angel of death is coming tonight. Kill Bessie, paint the door. So we've got a, a painting event going on and that somehow is gonna ward off the angel of death. If I'm thinking and I'm there, I'm like, can we come up with another plan? Kind of reinforce this. Let's do this, but let's also do some other stuff. Like, can we, is it wrong to be practical? Like, could we, could we dig a moat? around the house? Could we have a barbed wire fence? Could we reinforce the barbed wire with electrical fence? Could we get two praying grandmas on both sides of the family? Could, you know, just let's just get everything going in our direction. You know, several shotguns, a couple hand grenades, right? Whatever, right? Could we think practically about this? Because then I might sleep better with that situation. But here's the thing. God's provision of shelter doesn't depend on human ingenuity. It depends on substitutionary sacrifice. That way nobody can boast. At the end of the day, nobody can boast that we accomplished our own redemption. So here's the kind of shelter in place checklist that's given by God to the people. It's a threefold checklist. Kill the lamb. You see in verse five and six, you must have an unblemished lamb, animal, a year old. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You were to keep it to the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. So kill the lamb. Second, apply the blood. Verse seven, they must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses 
where they eat them. So kill the lamb, apply the blood, and third, stay inside. It's only safe in here, underneath blood-stained timber. Stay inside. There's death everywhere outside, much like Noah's Ark. There's death everywhere outside this ark. People are dying. Stay here under the shelter of the blood of the lamb. There to eat the meat, verse eight, that night they should eat it roasted over a fire. Do not eat any of it raw. It goes on to say, you must not leave any till morning. Here's how you must eat it, verse 11. Eat it dressed for travel. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. Why the haste? The haste because this plague is gonna work. This plague is going to bring Pharaoh to his knees. And the moment he says, fine, you can go. I want your staff in your hand and your shoes laced up. It's time to go. It's freedom time now. Tenth plague is going to be effective. The, the drama of this, don't miss it, it would have been so intense. Just, just take it in. So at midnight tonight, at midnight tonight, God is going to release the most unstoppable force in the universe. The angel of death is the executive arm of God's justice in the world and the angel of death is gonna go through the most powerful earthly system of oppression in world history like, like a knife through hot butter. It is, be, it, it is gonna be effective. It is going to be substantial. The only way you're gonna be shielded from terrifying justice on this particular night is a slain lamb. So we're talking all these next four weeks about how the Old Testament points us to Jesus. There's obvious progression here because the story of a lamb doesn't start here and it certainly doesn't end here either. If you want to follow the story of the lamb and the big story of the Bible, you see this progression. Lambs feature in the one big story of the Bible moving from Genesis to Revelation and it features in prominent places but lambs serve as representatives for increasingly large numbers of people. They, they're they're representatives for larger and larger groups of people. So for example, when Abraham was about to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice and God provided a lamb, one lamb for one boy, one lamb for Isaac. And then you come here and it's not one lamb for one boy, it's one lamb for one household. So lambs are slain all over Goshen Households are covered by the one lamb covers each household. Then God institutes the sacrificial system in the day of atonement. One lamb for all the sins of all of Israel. And then you keep reading the Bible. You come over to the New Testament. You see a guy named John the Baptist. He walks off the edge of the wilderness and he sees Jesus Christ coming down to the Jordan River. And what does John the Baptist say? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and so we move progressively from one lamb for one boy to one lamb for one family to one lamb for one nation to one lamb for one world the redemption of a people from every tribe tongue and nation I love this quote from John Stott he writes the concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. 
Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Friends, this is why the word gospel means good news. God steps in and absorbs the payment that we should have offered. The payment of death, the punishment for our sins is absorbed by God himself. Philip Ryken, I cannot improve on the way he describes this. It is theologically significant that Jesus was crucified right at the time of the Passover feast. This helps us see the connection between the first Passover and the final Passover, the passion of Christ. The day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem was the very day that the Passover lambs were driven into the city. And when Jesus celebrated the last supper with his disciples, he was celebrating Passover. He said, this is my body, this is my blood. His disciples didn't understand it at the time, but Jesus was really saying, the Passover is all about me. I am the sacrificial lamb. Then Christ was crucified. It was late in the afternoon on the eve of Passover. At twilight, lambs would be sacrificed by every household according to the law of Moses. All over the city, fathers were getting ready to make the offering, gathering their families together and saying, God has provided a lamb for us. Over at the temple, the high priest was also preparing a lamb to present as an atonement for Israel's sin. Then there was Jesus hanging on the cross with the sacrificial blood flowing from his hands inside. He was the lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. We have a problem, we have a shelter, we have a future. We have a future. You see verse one in verse 14, verse one, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. That's God saying to his people, whatever you call to be before in your year, it's day one. You flip the calendar all the way back because this is a new starting place. This is day one. And then verse 14, this day is to be a memorial for you and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. So it's a night of fear, it's a night of faith, and it's a night to remember. We know where this story is headed. We, we know how this comes to fulfillment. Our final salvation was secured through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as our substitute, the lamb who offered himself in our place. You, you cannot really fully understand the New Testament without understanding the Passover. Hebrews would make very clear, these lambs were not actually atoning for sin. Blood shed by common animals, even unblemished common animals to find the best one you got out there. But those, the death of those animals could not actually sufficiently atone for our sin and make us right with God. That would require the greatest intervention of God in human history, which is when God becomes a man, fully man, fully God, Jesus the Christ, lives a perfect life, dies a substitutionary death, hangs between earth and heaven. In our place, condemned he stood. It's a new beginning. So our scripture would say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Throw away your old calendar 
Egypt's calendar doesn't work anymore. You got a new beginning. It's the first month of the year. Still true for everyone who follows Jesus, who puts their trust in Jesus. Leave your Egypt calendar in Goshen. Today is day one. That's the promise that rings over into the pages of the New Testament. Your old king, God was saying to the Israelites, your old king is an empty suit now. He's a husk of his former glory. Let him sit in his old chair and watch his has-been kingdom fall apart. You have a new king now. Your old king has no power over your life. This is all pointing forward to the new Moses, pointing forward to Jesus Christ who would accomplish everything by his sacrifice. This, this is why the New Testament rings on this, or it resonates so deeply with this reality. First Peter chapter one, for you know, Peter writes, that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Then Paul gets going in 1 Corinthians chapter five. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And then fast forward to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter five. And between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so the Old Testament points us to our promised King Jesus. Jesus turns out to be what all these emblems are pointing forward to. Jesus is the firstborn son who dies under the darkened sky of divine judgment. Jesus is the Passover lamb whose bones were not broken when he was on the cross and his blood saves us from wrath. This, this has been the birthplace of, of a thousand hymns in church history. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the shepherd like Moses who leads us out into the worship of God. Jesus overcomes our greatest threats, powers and principalities in this almighty showdown where he drowns death in his own death. Jesus unites us to himself when we put our faith in Jesus Christ such that the path that he leads ahead, he forges this path through the deep and we walk through on dry ground. We're united to him. His outcomes become our outcomes. Jesus is the pure and unleavened bread of life. If you don't feast on him, you starve in the wilderness. All these things are pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Here's the lesson. Never forget the source of your hope. Never forget the source of your hope. Somewhere in a pile of photos at my house, there's a picture of me holding a trophy up with a team I didn't play for. And I didn't play for the team because I was the bat boy for my brother's all-star baseball team. My older brother played on that team. And there was a legendary, in the annals of Girard Playground baseball, there is a legendary win uh, when the all-star team got it all and I was the guy hanging up the bats, pulling them off the field and hanging them in the chain link and doing all this stuff. 
I don't remember the score of the game. I don't even remember who we were playing, but I do remember the end. I remember when we emptied the dugout and my brother was the one on the mound and we ran up to the mound and we were all in a certain, you would have thought we won the SEC championship. It was like, it was a huge thing. We were making tons of racket, screaming our heads off, dog pile piling on top of each other, jumping and screaming. And my mom captures this photo of the moment. What I love about Exodus chapter 12 is right there in the first two verses, God tells him how the story is gonna end. And then he says, by the way, when you, when you eat this meal together, keep your shoes on, because you're, you're gonna be packing up your stuff and leaving Egypt shortly. The Passover was God's way of taking a picture so that they would never forget the day their heads were raised in triumph over an enemy they didn't even have to fight. That night, they ate a meal under blood-stained timber and they ate it in their running shoes because that night was the night that God would demonstrate that the destructive power of their foes was no match for the redeeming grace of their God. And so that very night, Moses and God's people fled out of Egypt and out of slavery. They were free at last. God's people would always remember this great rescue and call it Passover, but an even greater rescue was coming. Many years later, God was going to do it again. He was going to come down once more to rescue his people, but this time God was going to set them free forever and ever. What do you know about God that makes you worship? Friends, God's word is full of people. The New Testament is full of people. And 2,000 years of church history is full of people who were moved to worship on this truth. God sacrifices himself in the place of sinful men so that we can approach him and so that we could know freedom. What a joy.